electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Fast Money does begin right now. Fast Money starts right now. Live from the Nasdaq market site overlooking New York City's Times Square, I'm Melissa Lear. Traders on the desk are Tim Seymour, Karen Feinerman, Dan Nathan, and Guy Dami. Tonight on Fast Oil on a tear, the Saudi crackdown taking crude to its highest level in more than two years. And a top technician says the rally has just started. You will not believe how high he sees it going. Plus, the chip wars heating up and companies are quickly taking sides amid a number of mergers in the space. You keep buying this chip rip and later attack of the shack. Shake Shack out with a hot new menu item on its books. But will it heat up sales? The CEO, Randy Garuti, will be here on set to put it to the ultimate fast money test. But first, we start off with what could be one of the most important deals in media history. Disney has been holding talks to buy some of the largest entertainment assets of 21st Century Fox, a deal that would change the landscape of media as we know it. That, according to our own David Faber, who broke the story earlier today. David is at the New York Stock Exchange with more on this developing story. Hi, David. Hey, Melissa. Yeah, of course, uh, if uh, either side looks at the stock market reaction today, they may well be emboldened to re-engage. Of course, as we reported earlier, the talks had taken place over the last few weeks. They were significant talks, but there was a lot more yet to go, and they are not holding them at this very present moment. It was unclear as to exactly why they had halted uh, the conversations that, as you indicated, had uh, led towards the potential deal under which Disney would have bought many, but certainly not all, of the assets of Fox, and in fact would not have bought many of the key cash flow producing assets uh, of the company. What would have been kept and what would be kept under Fox if and when these talks are revisited would be what you're looking at right there on the right of your screen, namely Fox Sports, which cannot be merged with ESPN in part because of antitrust concerns. Fox News, Fox Business News, uh, the Fox stations, Fox Broadcast Network, and many of these are the key cash flow producing assets for the company. But what Disney would have conceivably bought uh, is also large. Uh, involves uh, international business, which, of course, uh, is its ownership in Sky. More on that in a moment. Uh, Star in India. You're also talking about Nat Geo, which has a significant international exposure. The cable network FX. And most importantly, perhaps, the TV and movie uh, production studios, which would be used, certainly one would imagine, by Disney to help even make larger and more robust its direct-to-consumer offering that it's planning and rolling out uh, in 2019. So we'll see uh, where this goes from here, but certainly they have to be watching what has been a very positive reaction in the marketplace, Melissa. And I would think, David, that the, that the 10 percent uh, bid to, to Fox shares today gives it sort of it pressures the company into doing something. If Disney is not the buyer for these assets, it's got to find another buyer. You know, I, I don't know if that is the case, and I'm still trying to understand exactly the timeline and sequence of events here in terms of who approached whom. I know the talks began, uh, let's call it early October, roughly, uh, went over the space of a number of weeks. As I said, they were not ongoing at this very moment. But I think the story is important in and of itself, even if this were to not come to fruition, because it sends a message from Fox, which, as I reported throughout the day many times, has decided to a large extent 
that being able to compete in this ever-changing landscape of media companies is more and more difficult without significant scale. And when they look at the likes of a Netflix or an Amazon or a Google or a Facebook or an Apple or even a Microsoft, which they include in there uh, as well, they see a difficult environment for them to really be a scale competitor in digital video. And that seems to have at least sparked their willingness to consider parting with some of these key assets and slimming down to what would really become a sports and news company. David, it's Karen. To your and Melissa's question, normally you see this thing leak to sort of gauge the shareholder response. But in this case, I mean, would Fox even really need to worry about the shareholder response? And Disney could do a deal even with cash and stock and not need shareholder approval because it's so big. So why leak it? Why have this out there? You know, you're such an R. You're such a risk R. You really are. I am are. by I mean, training, yes. Always talking about leaks, trying to figure out where the leaks came from. Do you ever hear of enterprise reporting? Did any of you ever actually believe somebody could get a hold of something they shouldn't have and actually force Good people to talk to them? No, you've yeah, been doing it for years. And that there was not a, tactical, not a tactical leak here? I don't believe that was the case. I think it was still relatively early in the talks, and I think they would have preferred that they stayed private. David, thanks so much for your good reporting. We appreciate it. David Faber sure joining thing. us from the New York Stock Exchange. And you are that good, David. I know you <laughs> yes. do that. I didn't mean to imply at all that he is. He is that good. He right. is always, yes. <laughs> this deal coming, of course, as the biggest media companies struggle to keep up with the fast-paced landscape. So is Disney making the right move by doubling down on content? Should Disney be making a different kind of deal? Guy. So Disney reports, I believe, this Thursday. I think Fox reports on Wednesday. It's important, I think, to get that out. I don't know if it means anything, but it's important to point it out. Do I think Disney's doing the right thing? I th what this said to me today, and we talked about this at 2.30, is this is Disney, in my opinion, saying, you know what? Netflix has been eating our lunch now for the last five to seven years. And the best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago. The next best time is today. So they have to do something. Whether this deal gets done or not, I'm not certain. But I think, to me, all this does is show the power of Netflix and the dominance of Netflix. And I think Reed Hastings sits back and says, look at what we've done over the last seven years. Look at the land grab we've done. And everybody is behind us. Now everybody's starting to figure out that it's time to catch up. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure I agree with that as it relates to Netflix. I mean, when you think about it, Netflix is really, um, you know, you know, it, it doesn't have the content, obviously, that Disney has one way or another. Disney is actually planting. They, they have been planting the seeds for the tree that they want for distribution. So to me, I think it's I, I think Netflix strategy shows you just this week when they're canceling House of Cards, the content that put them on the map, because one issue with one actor that you really do need broad diversification of content. And that's what Disney's going for. And I also think that this may, it, you know, whatever they plan to do or end up doing with Fox A or another content content um, provider tells you that they're confident in what they're doing with BAMTech. And so I don't think that this has that much to do with Netflix, in my personal opinion. Yeah, I mean, I, I look at the common ground in Hulu, and that's not, you know, that's not a, I don't think that's an accident. Um, I think Hulu is also part of the reason here, again, direct to consumer. However they're going to do it, we know Disney, BAMTech, very important, uh, certainly in the sports world for Major League Baseball. Um, I think this, this sends a message that that Netflix announcement of two weeks ago, which or whenever it was, about a month ago when Disney said they were going to go out on their own, they are going to cut some of the core licensing mm -hmm. in 2019 to Netflix. Um, first of all, Netflix has done 
phenomenally well since that announcement to me, because I, I think that signals that the writing is on the wall. But remember, Disney, we talked about this on the desk. I think a couple of you guys suggested maybe Disney should buy Netflix. And, and, and my view was that's absurd. And I think this deal um, rumbling, whatever this is today, tells you why that's absurd. Well, that, that means that you think that this makes it a real competitor to Netflix. I th- look, I think kind of what, the opposite of what Dan's saying. Yeah. Well, no, I think I agree with Dan. I mean, what Dan okay. is saying is that basically Netflix is not a content play, really, and how vulnerable they were to one actor. I totally agree with that. Netflix is a, is a distribution play. And, and to me, for them to be trading at the multiple they do when they don't really control the content, their costs are going higher, the competitive landscape is getting worse and worse. The, the good news today is that the media sector, I think, has a catalyst across the board. Right. And I think Viacom and CBS are going to start looking right, right. at each other again. I so think I got a lot to, your initial question was a very astute one, oh, which is who's, who, in whose interest would it be to leak the story? And maybe right. that would be a competing media company. Uh, who got wind of this deal. Um, or a, ban- or a banker working on another media deal who got wind of this deal. Right, or it wasn't in their interest, but it happened anyway. Yeah, because of David Zaxley's reporting, yes. which is the most likely yes. scenario. <laughs> However, it makes me think sort of two things. Um, one is that Disney is concerned. Disney is concerned about its place. It's concerned about its business. And this might be the right deal. They, they're not mutually exclusive, those two things at all. I don't know if it is. I don't know if it actually happens either. But I, I think we've got more downside to come on Disney's business. If it doesn't make a deal or if it does make a deal. Well, the, or it'll both. take a while to do to do that. Sure. Anyway, in the meantime, though, uh-huh. I think we'll continue to see pressure on Disney's business. But given the reaction to this potential deal, does it show us that Disney needs to do a deal to acquire more content to beef up its its new direct-to-consumer platform. I think what it shows us, what Tim was alluding to, that now maybe the entire space whose valuation has been under pressure now for quite some time, maybe they're, maybe they're getting reevaluated in terms of valuation, which is why the space is up. If there's going to be M&A in the space, I think valuations go higher. I'm not certain. Look, I don't know if they need to do this deal or not, but I do think that many of these players are behind the eight Well, listen, ball. it's a massive risky uh, risk for them. I mean, think about it. One of the reasons they're in this situation they are right now is people think they way overpaid for a lot of these sports rights, right, a long time ago. So now if they start to way overpay uh, for original content, they could 10 years from now find themselves in a very similar situation. So to me, I'm not certain it makes a lot of sense. What makes a lot of sense is they have these massive movie friends Franchises. We know that their parks are doing well. We know that there's a lot of expanded stuff that they do off of these franchises. And to keep pushing on their own delivery mechanism, to me, makes a lot of sense. And that's what I think Bob Iger is trying to do in the next couple of years, setting it up for his successor. Yeah, but I don't think anything's just overpaying. I don't think so. I mean, if anything, again, media uh, content has been knocked down massively. Maybe this is the best time to buy it, Dan, because I'm not sure uh, the core content here. And Fox has some very complimentary stuff to Disney Maybe maybe it doesn't get cheaper than this. All right. For more on what this deal could mean for the future of the media space, let's bring in New York Times columnist, Pulitzer Prize winner Jim Stewart, an author of Disney War, one of the great business books, if you haven't read it already. Um, Jim, it's always great to get your take on everything Disney and in, in the media space. What do you make of this deal? Does Disney have to do a deal like this? Well, it's utterly fascinating. Uh, I don't think Disney has to do it. I think the stock market reaction indicates it's probably a better deal for Fox than it is for Disney. But I think it could be a plus for Disney, definitely. This, to me, is a domino, maybe one of many, from the decision to kind of cut the ties to Netflix and to go it, go it on their own with, with the Internet distribution. If you're a Fox, you've got to ask, how many companies have the scale to do that? The old models are breaking down. You're not going to be able to rely on traditional distribution. Could Fox do that on its own? How many of these over-the-top things are consumers going to pay for? I, I don't think anyone thinks Fox could. And so it's going to be have to either go with a bigger 
player like Disney or throw its lot in and have less and less leverage with the Amazons and the Netflixes of the world. So I, mean, I think it makes a lot of sense for them. The implicit message that Fox is sending by even engaging in these talks is tremendous considering, right, News Corp just split into these two separate companies four years ago. So at one point right. four years ago, they thought that 21st Century Fox could make a go of it. And here they are selling a bulk of their assets. Yeah, well, 21st Century Fox is supposed to be the fast-growing right. entity here, the one with the high multiple, which has not exactly panned out. But, uh, yeah, there's a for sale sign up now, and I wouldn't confine it to, to Fox. If the, the deal doesn't happen here, look at the other studios that don't have the scale to go over the top on their own. They've got to be looking at this and saying, how do we maximize shareholder value here? I think for Disney, you know, they get some international distribution, which could be uh, good for them. Traditionally, they've gone for content, but I, you know, lately they've been pushing the, the distribution envelope, and this would be, would enhance the content. They, they get the film library, I assume, from Fox. They, they get some nice assets there. They've got a, the Avatar. I think Disney could do a lot with that. They bring Wolverine X-Men back into right. the Marvel fold. They've got the Ice Age animation thing going there. They got a majority uh, ownership stake in Hulu. Yes. They, it becomes 60%. Which could, how that would work with their right. new standalone entity remains to be seen. But I think there's a lot of interesting potential there. But to me, on the face of it, it's a more obvious move for Fox than it is for Disney. Jim, with the balance sheet that Apple has and, and potentially repatriation of dollars for a lot of these companies, does Apple get, does Apple sit back and, not that they need help with anything, but is, are they a player in this game at some point? They've got the means, and they've got, they've got to be looking at it. They keep talking about TV and moving into some you know, dimension there. I, I mean, the one thing that we've seen from Netflix and Amazon is that the barrier to entries in content creation are not very high. It's astounding to me how quickly and easily they seem to have moved in there. And, yes, you know, the House of Cards thing is a problem right now, but they're churning stuff out left and right. They've got all Hollywood lined up knocking on their door to work for them. Uh, so... If Apple wants to do it, they want to pay to do it, I think they can. Is a Disney deal for a lot of these 21st Century Fox assets the kind of deal that a man who's one foot out the door makes? I mean, <laughs> does Iger stay longer? Is that a possibility at this point? Well, I've stopped. You know, Iger said he was going to retire so many times, and he's not doing it, so I'm just not paying attention to that anymore. I don't think he does have one foot out the door. On the other hand, look, he gets this, he absorbs it, he integrates it. That could be a, a great exit moment. His great legacy. And how about the legacy for Rupert Murdoch? Well, look, this gets a big problem off Murdoch's hands. He's got problems with the British government, the, whether the Sky deal is going to get approved. Handing that over to somebody else on some level must seem like a relief to him, but it might also might look like a defeat. But look, he's a hard-nosed businessman. I think looking at the future of this model, and he's got his children involved as well, I think he has to do something. Prior to today, when you took a look at Disney, did you think that it needed to make any acquisition, and what would that have been? Uh, no, honestly, I didn't. I think, okay. uh, given this latest announcement, they're, they're absorbing BAM Tech. They're embarking on a, you know, this new distribution challenge, which, by the way, is a technical challenge for them. Disney has not had a good track record when it comes to technology and the Internet. I thought they had a full plate there. And now suddenly taking on another big acquisition like this, uh, very challenging. But I, I wouldn't say they can't do it. All right. Jim, thanks a lot for stopping by. Good to see you. James Stewart of The New York Times.
What do you buy off the back I, of this? I think it Anything? reinforces the case for Time Warner. I think that obviously okay. the deal they're talking about today would be a horizontal deal. The Time, uh, the T-Mobile uh, Sprint deal that was talked about until just today, again, was a horizontal sort of deal. So to me, it makes a stronger case why that AT&T should be allowed to buy Time Warner. Time Warner sold off on uh, potential some sort of Justice Department uh, opposition to it. I don't think that's the case. So this stock should be above 100 again pretty soon. Do you like Disney more or less? Absolutely more. Okay. Um, and and I, I realize, as, as James pointed out, the market rewarded Fox more today. But if you think about the multiple that Disney has been losing uh, and, and with the multiple that a Netflix and a distribution platform um, seems to garner in today's environment, di di you know, if Disney can now strap on enough content, which was already fantastic, to actually be in a place where they, they can go hard at this and, and have a very compelling great, you know, uh, direct to consumer over the top, Disney is a much more interesting story today. That they're ready to think aggressively and outside the box and not be organic with this, I think, is also very bullish. You got the Fox movie library. You have FX. You have Nat Geo on top of all of the Disney properties. We don't know what they're going to pay. Right. That's yes, true, too. That's true, too. Yeah. Or if it could even happen. So I'm not long, not short. All right. Coming up, a couple of travel stocks reporting after hours. Priceline and TripAdvisor both sinking. We'll bring you the very latest details next. Plus, a Saudi shakeup sending shockwaves around the world and oil to a two-year high. Top technicians as a rally. Just getting started. He'll give you the names he sees having the greatest upside. And Shake Shack rallying since its earnings report last week. So has Shack gotten its mojo back? We'll ask the CEO who'll tell us his plan to heat up sales. Much more Fast Money. Straight ahead. Welcome back to Fast Money. We've got an earnings alert on two big online travel stocks, Priceline and TripAdvisor, both sinking. Let's get to Seema Modi for the details. Seema. Melissa, and let's start with Priceline, where guidance disappointed as costs continue to rise. CEO Glenn Flogel on the earnings call said aggressively expanding Priceline's vacation rental business is a key part of its growth strategy. As of September 30th, Booking.com had over 816,000 vacation rental properties, which was a 58% year over year growth rate, though expanding its efforts in this vacation rental space as it competes with Airbnb and Expedia's HomeAway, plus its investment in branded advertising could put pressure on margins and longer-term growth, and that's why the stock is down over 9% here in extended trade. Separately, TripAdvisor continues to struggle to boost revenue growth. Now, its main challenge is getting more users to book travel on its site versus using Trip purely for content and reviews. Also, TripAdvisor has been in some hot water over a story that involves censoring and deleting reviews. But Trip says it has updated its publish publishing guidelines. That conference call kicks off tomorrow. Overarching risk is simply competition. This is a crowded market. Expedia, Priceline, Airbnb. Melissa, also worth noting that hotels are also trying to circumvent online travel operators with competitive pricing. Take a look at Marriott. Shares there up 70% over the past one year. Of course, that's the biggest hotel operator. Guys? All right, Seema, thank you. Seema Modi in the newsroom with that. Um, so a lot of trouble in this space because it's not just TripAdvisor and Priceline that have pulled back expectations. Trivago um, has, has done that. Expedia has done that. If you looked at this, if Priceline, you looked at that quarter, just the quarter, the quarter is actually pretty good. Beat on revenue, beat on EPS. And if you just took that headline to say things are going pretty well, but the guidance is, I mean, that is an absolute disaster. So they either see something that the rest of the space is seeing or they're trying to get ahead of something. Either way, what's the right level? I still don't think it's crazy expensive given what they're still going to earn. But if you look back in March, 
This stock took off from $1,700, and we're right around there now. So if you're looking for an entry point, that takeoff from $1,700 could pose an interesting level. Yeah, I will just say that you said that they met this quarter. They actually guided down this quarter back in August. That's why it had that big gap from all-time highs. So now they did the same thing. They came in line to already lowered guidance, and they guided down. They'll probably come into line to that. If they don't get some things sorted out, they may miss again. So guys talking about valuation, you know, prior to today, the thing is expected for fiscal 2018 to grow sales and earnings about 15% or so, trading at 25 times, 22 times that forward number. You know, if it's all decelerating, it's kind of expensive. And Seema said something that's really important. It's a very crowded space right now with some headwinds. There's no reason to get into either of these names. I mean, you know, first of all, TripAdvisor is trying to essentially grow their hotel business through market deals. It's not a great way to do it right now. It's an expensive way to do it. It's weighing on margins. These stocks have lost their mojo. There's, as you said, I mean, look, on a trailing basis, these things get absolutely not touched. On a forward basis, we don't know because they keep guiding lower. No reason to get here. I now. mean, you throw in Carr, yep. Davis, yep. right? Yes. They lower the 2017 guidance. I mean, these are all companies that are sort of being disrupted by a sharing economy environment. Airbnb yep. threatening some of these guys. We've got... I uh, can't believe the hotel Uber companies and- trade as well as they do. I mean, it seems like such an enormous threat, and yet I don't know if they seem impervious at the moment. Yeah. What do you make of this uh, 13% decline, Tim? Well, you know, again, I think this is an industry where there's been a lot of short interest. There's been a lot of structural headwinds. Some of them have been overdone. Um, I think the pulled forward nature of the hurricane season is something that actually sent false signals on really where demand is. They Look at the historic multiples on these and ask yourself a question. Should they be anywhere near them? And the answer is no. Still ahead, chip stocks cruising past their all-time highs as one of the biggest deals in tech history could be on the table. Do you keep buying the chip rip? The traders will weigh in. I'm Melissa Lee. You're watching Fast Money on CNBC, first in business worldwide. In the meantime, here's what else is coming up on Fast. How long since you had a real old-fashioned sloppy joke? Not sure, but Shake Shack is doubling down on chili. And we've got a special report on what that could mean for surging shares of Shaq. Plus, as Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman moves to consolidate power, one commodity is surging. And here's a hint. Up through the ground come a bubbling And a top technician who called the move says the oil rally's just starting. And he'll tell us just how high he sees it going when Fast Money returns. move away from there, Welcome back to Fast Money. A political shakeup in Saudi Arabia over the weekend, sending oil surging to its highest levels in more than two years. Dom Chu's breaking it down from the newsroom. Hi, Dom. All right, so, Melissa, it really is playing out like a made-for-TV drama, Game of Thrones, whatever you want to call it. That's what's going on in the oil-rich kingdom of Saudi Arabia. Over the weekend, in what the Saudi government is calling an anti-corruption campaign, a slew of royal family members and high-ranking officials were rounded up and then arrested. The man behind it is the man next in line to be the king of Saudi Arabia. This is Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. Many analysts say that this is merely a way for the Crown Prince to consolidate his power. Even well-known Saudi prince and billionaire investor Al-Walid bin Talal has been arrested. Now, the growing uncertainty and risk around the Middle East helped propel oil prices to the highest levels, like you said, since the summer of 2015. Over the last month, WTI futures have gone from around 49 and change to over 57 today, a 16% gain during that span. Now, during that one-month span, Royals, Royal Dutch Shell shares are up about 9%. BP, British Petroleum, up 8%. On our side of the Atlantic, you've got integrated oil giant Exxon up around 3%, so not nearly as much there. Refiner Valero up 6%. 
Oil-related stocks could be looking to have that catch-up trade. That's what some traders are looking for right now. The sector is still negative on the year, one of only two sectors, the other being telecom right now. So, Melissa, as of now, the energy sector is the biggest bright spot in earnings season. But the caveat, of course, guys, we're working off a very low base. Back over to you. All right, Dom, thank you. Dom Chu in the newsroom. Um, Tim, I will go to you. Well, first of all, I mean, the news out of Saudi Arabia is extraordinary because I think it's, it's historic. We're maybe building the, the fourth Saudi kingdom. Is either, they're selling it over there. 70% of the population below the age of 35. So this is definitely geared towards a change. Uh, I, don't I don't think get this... why oil is sent to those levels. Well, so is the, there over the weekend, risk the week... that supply is going to be in jeopardy? Well, first of all, there's a lot of tension in the region. Mm -hmm. And over the weekend, there was a ballistic missile apparently that was fired at the Riyadh airport. Um, you have uh, it claims to be Yemen. There's they're blaming on the Iranis. And, and I think there's a lot of dynamics here. But but remember, what's taking energy prices higher is the fact that one, global financials uh, fundamentals are better. Two, you're actually seeing a massive, you saw a massive cutback in CapEx over the last three years. You actually have non-OPEC working with OPEC for how long? I don't know. But I think you, know, you have a dynamic here where oils rallied 44% just off the June lows, not off the, just you know, recently. And everyone has doubted this move. And you started to see the energies move, the, the underlying energy stocks move. Um, Oil services, Halliburton, a name I'm long. Uh, I talked about APC, I think another name. It's about them also being disciplined with CapEx and giving money back to investors. OIH was the big winner in today's session, for sure. So, and Tim, you know, Tim's been on this for a while. Slumber's a for up 5.5% today. But you go back to the end, of, beginning of 2016, stock, SLB stopped at 61. Look where it stopped recently. Look where it is now. So in terms of risk-reward, maybe it continues to set up well. I'll add one more thing to the pastiche that Tim put out nice. there. Mm. There was a, a helicopter, helicopter crash this weekend yes. as well. Crash. I, listen, I mean, I'm old enough to remember Brie when went down back in the day. I'm just saying that seems a little bit odd as well. So there's clearly something going. I know you shake your head, but I'm not saying no, no, I agree. There's a lot I'm, going I'm, on. It is spy movie stuff. It is. All right. Our next guest called the energy breakout exactly one week ago in a note to clients. And since then, energy has rallied 4%. Chart maps of Carter Worth Cornerstone Macro says there is more room to run. Carter, what are you looking at? Well, today, obviously, a big day. We know that uh, crude was up a lot. Energy stocks were up. If you look at the circumstance where the commodity is up 3% and energy stocks up 2% on the same day, you get quite a bit of follow through, uh, typically one, two, three, five, six, eight weeks out. Let's step back and look at the long-term picture, and then um, maybe we can figure out where we're going. This is the Russell 3000 Energy Index. So all the S&P 500 energy stocks plus others, about 170 stocks, $1.7 And the key is this, at least to my eye, that this downtrend where we lost 50% of the value, we have now for the first time really gotten above this line. And, and, and the bet was that that really is the beginning of something more sustainable. All of this has been very noisy. This, I think, is the beginning of something that's going to uh, be enduring. So it's all about catch-up. Uh, just as Don was saying, obviously, this area of the market is lagged. This is energy lagged the market. And I'm just going to make the bet that this nascent little period here is going to go. Even if the market goes up itself, I think you're going to get more up out of energy. Okay. So, a couple relative charts. Relative is very important. Top is all Russell 3000 energy, and the bottom is relative performance to the overall market. Now, you can draw the lines this way, which is to show that we have broken above this downtrend line, the relative downtrend line. So, not only is energy going up, 
it is going up more than the market. Draw the lines another way. On the relative, we have something of a head and shoulders bottom. That's very important as well. Okay. Here is, again, the entire shooting match. This is from the lowest quality energy names to the biggest in the world, Exxon. You can draw the lines many ways. I think one way to draw the lines is this. People talk about cups and handles, but you can call it whatever you want. It's a well-defined. You could also say maybe it was a head and shoulders bottom. doesn't matter what you call it. It's a reversal formation. Another way to draw the lines is just the fact that we've come out of this channel. So let's put in our head and shoulders, put in our arrow. By all accounts, it suggests up. Um, you got to go with it. Carter comes over. Oh, of course. Obviously. Come on over, Carter. Thank you, Ariel, for bringing the chair in. All right, Carter. Oh, yeah. So if this is a catch-up trade, does that imply that we need to rotate out of the better performers in the energy sector, such as the refiners? Well, so the, the, if, you're, if you're going to embrace it in its entirety, you just play beta, right? I mean, and that's either finding the diamond offshores, things that are in rigs that are really down. Notice what happened today in the drillers, right? Schlumberger, Halliburton, huge outperformers. And you, by definition, stay away from the defensive stuff, the, the Chevrons and Exxons and, and, and refiners. Okay, so you would rotate within the sector. Yeah, okay. but I, I think what's important about this is that it, it's going it's to lift all the boats, right? And it, it, almost without exception, even coal names have... I've shown a little life, and that's pretty bad stuff. Carter, give us a sense of how underweight people are, because all we ever hear about is, I don't have to be in the energy sector, and this is why this is the pain trade that goes higher. Right. So knowing what we know is that it's only about 6% of the S&P, a lot of managers just don't bother, right? It's just like when you take tests, you can say, well, just forget that question. I'll waste a lot of time on this, but it's only going to be 4% of of Guy did a lot of that. Terrible. Then you knock yourself out of the running from getting 100%. You (laughs) don't want to do that. Anyway. So so the idea is that a lot of people don't even bother anyway because the real way forward is through idiosyncratic growth, finding finding the Amazons and so forth. But for those who are generalists, um, I think people remain underweight and properly so until maybe now because the, the burden of proof has been on the bull. We've had a lot of false starts. And energy, even as it went, was best performing in 16, it was, it was a very uh, temporary thing. We went and made new relative lows again this year. So uh, you got to get on sides. you got to be present. All right. Carter, thank you. Thank you. Carter Worth of Cornerstone Macro. Karen, do these start to look like values to you? Well, they did apparently a little while ago. Uh, <laughs> so now, you know, I don't know. I... I, I I don't have a huge energy. I'm exactly what you're talking about. Don't have huge energy exposure. Just staying with Golar. It moved up 3% today on nothing, really. Just trades with oil, even though it shouldn't. Right. Dan. Yeah, I would just say that, I mean, it kind of fits the narrative of this global synchronized recovery, right? We've been waiting for, you know, crude has obviously been acting better, like Tim said, since the summer, but a lot of the oil stocks have not acted in kind. So here you are, you know, a lot of people are underweight, sentiment's still really poor. Now you're starting to get some global data that might support it. So it makes sense that you would chase it for beta, uh, like Carter mentioned. All right, coming up, deal chatter in the chip space, sending the group to new highs. So as the chip wars heat up, which of those names are a buy? The traders will weigh in. Plus, Shake Shack debuting a new menu item this month that could heat up the stock. We'll talk to the company's CEO and put it to the ultimate fast money test. Much more fast Hmm. money still ahead. Welcome back to Fast 
Fast Money. The chip wars are heating up as the semi-stocks are on fire. The group hitting an all-time high today. And no one is standing still. Broadcom proposing the biggest tech deal ever, making a $103 billion unsolicited takeover bid for Qualcomm. Then, in a galaxy nearby, Intel and AMD <laughs> confirming a partnership today that would help take on rival NVIDIA. So as companies team up, deal talk swirls in the space. Do you keep buying the chip rip? I don't think you do. I don't think there's too many more deals that can happen here. Well, there's Marvel and, and Caviam too, we should mention. Yeah, I mean, they're much smaller. You know, I think if you do have a $100 billion deal for a company um, like Qualcomm, maybe then NXPI will most certainly get bought by somebody else. But then at that point, there's really nothing left to do. I just think that the sector's gone too far too fast. I've been um, short the SMH for about a week. It's a little, uh, a little early. Uh, and it's you mean hurting. painful? Yeah, it's been, it has been. Uh, but to me, I think you do get a check back at some point. Maybe it, but, Dan, maybe why, it aren't these, why aren't these companies, and whether it's, you know, whether it's Qualcomm, which had its day in the sun and obviously fell out of favor, whether it's NVIDIA, which you know, people want to throw every great technological yeah. advancement on them, they are being given the benefit of the doubt as being in the place and deserving the multiple that will take over tomorrow's technology. And if I look at it in Intel, it's totally underperformed the SMH over the last couple of years. And I can make an argument, despite that move, that the biggest and the, probably the most diversified of them all has a more room to go. Right. Well, listen, that's the bet I made in Intel early in the year. I was looking at it, it was trading 12 times. They yeah. said if this stock trades at a, a market multiple, it's a mid 40s stock, and that's where it is. So I'm no longer long it there. Now everyone thinks it's a high 50s stock. And, and to me, you need to have a lot of things go right for multiple expansion or for that $3.25 number in 2018 go to four. And I'm just not certain that's going to happen. I sort of think NXP is really interesting in this whole thing because. Yeah. You know, Broadcom in their letter said, we're fine for you to buy it at 110. We don't know if that was going to happen totally outside of this Broadcom situation. And I think given what's happened in the whole space, I don't know, your downside doesn't seem huge here. And I think on no deal, it probably trades higher. If you're a Qualcomm shareholder, yeah. though. And yeah, Qualcomm could bid up to try to prevent. That's true. Yeah. yeah. Yes. If you're a Qualcomm shareholder, should you like this? So many analysts have come out saying $70 a share. 60 in cash, See, 10 in stock, not enough. I would say no. I mean, obviously, well, I would say the, the short answer is I would say no. And I uh -huh. would say if I were Qualcomm shareholder, you, you mean to tell me that I've sat through the last 18 months where you basically have impelled yourself at every turn, endured this Apple thing, problems in China, you're starting to come out the other end, you have a great balance sheet, and you're telling me for 70 bucks a share you're going to let you... That's suggesting that's going to happen, but I would I would think that shareholders think it's worth a lot more. Than so the Apple dispute share. and losing the licensing fee stream from Apple that's already completely in the stock. in the price for I sure. Believe so. Absolutely. Okay. In fact, I think it's more. It, I, mean, I, I think that was overdone, and, and I think the M, the NXP deal is one that's not in the price. So I, I think completion of that deal, them you know Broadcom allowing that deal to get done, maybe even somehow supporting it behind the scenes. Brings us back to where Guy is, which is 70 bucks is not enough for Qualcomm. Is there a point at which you think NXPI is a buy? Uh, you know, I don't know. I'd probably buy some in. options here because you know exactly your downside. I think it's sort of interesting. But this deal, this Qualcomm deal is for sure not going to happen at 70. That's the least right. likely price, right? That's their opening sure. bid. We don't know how much more room they so do have. You buy, do you buy it? Do I buy it? Probably, I mean... I think the next, the very next event will be a negative, aggressive negative response from Qualcomm. So it might trade down on that. Right. Then maybe you look at it, because Broadcom's letter is pretty aggressive. They're going to come with a slate. 
Yeah. I think it'll be. You getting all risk RV again. It's an 80s show. Girl out of risk RV. Go ahead. Weight Watchers soaring to new highs after hours. The stock now up 10%. We'll tell you what's behind those gains. And from bulge to burger, Shake Shack surging more than 20% from its recent low. And there's a new menu item that could continue to spice up the stock. Oh. That was a hint. We've got oh. the details. More fast money still ahead. Welcome back to Fast Money. Check out shares of Weight Watchers gaining <laughs> nearly 10% yeah. after hours. The stock is now up more than 300% this year. Wow, Tim, what a rise. Fat returns. I mean, it's been <laughs> unbelievable. The move from 10 to almost 47 bucks, and the outlook is, is increased. Their investments in technology and becoming kind of this new age, this old company, this old story, it's been nothing short of extraordinary. Short interest in the stock, a big deal. One of the reasons why I think the stock could go higher. There's yeah. a very simple explanation for all oh. this. Oh, really? Really? Yeah, what would is. that be? It's people like me and our, and our senior executive producer extraordinaire, Max Myers. People that go to places, for example, like Shake Shack all the time. Are you and saying really? Max's? You go to I'm Shake not saying Shack anything, all the time? But I, what I, well, you want to take a look? Because I was just there earlier today. Take a look at this. We just launched a brand new chili here, which we're so excited about. So we're going to make chili hamburger, we're going to make chili cheese fries, and then a chili cheese sauce because it's such classic Americana and deliciousness. How do we start? So we have some hot dogs right here. And what we like to do at Shake Shack is we actually cut them down the center. And what we're doing here is creating caramelization on the outside and the inside. So, so Mark, it looks like our dogs are about done. They look nice and golden brown. They're juicy on the outside. I think these are ready. We can take it off, put it in that bun. Dog placement is key. Yes, yeah. So, Mark, next, time for our burgers, right? Yep, and of course, the heart of a great burger is the beef itself. At Shake Shack, that means no hormones, no antibiotics, all vegetarian fed. That's where the delicious burger lies. So let's go. <laughs> I'm going to top with a little bit of cheese. We have a bun waiting. Bun waiting. Yep, and you drop it right over there. Now, if you noticed, we didn't cook the chili. Why? Yep. That's a Shake Shack secret recipe. I don't even have access to it. <laughs> you know what? We got the burger here. Let's, Throw a let's add on the some burger. on the burger, yeah. Mark, the only thing left to do is a taste test. Yeah, for sure. Mm. As they said in Pulp Fiction, that is one tasty burger. <laughs> mm -hmm. What guy didn't eat is here on set for us to taste. Thanks for saving some guy. Well, that's yeah, exactly. the way I roll. Nice placement on the dog, you by the way. You wouldn't have done that, but can, quickly, the magical. folks at Shake, they couldn't have been, Kristen and Mark treated me like a king. A king, I say. First class all the way. Free labor. <laughs> Which is getting higher. I mean, All right. Point. We're now joined by Randy Garuti, the CEO of Shake Shack. Randy, welcome to the NASDAQ. Good to be here. Guy, if that, this TV gig doesn't work out yeah, for I'm you, in. we're hiring. <laughs> you look good and natural. Appreciate that. Um, how important is chili going to be? I, it's important. We always, look, we keep a very tight core focus menu. Shake Shack is that old roadside burger stand done right. And from time to time, we like to add things. Chili's uh, our, our fun, most latest addition. And, uh, you know, we, we rarely do things like fries, hot dogs, and burgers at the same time. But it's really good. Slow braised, got some ancho chili, chili to arbol, just a little bit spicy. And I think it's going to be a winner. I would ah. imagine the margins on chili are fantastic. 
Yeah, pretty good. When you buy the kind of ingredients that we buy, you know, we generally tend to have a higher cost of goods sold than a lot of other companies because we have hormone antibiotic-free beef because we really care about where we source things from. Um, so we're, you know, we're more about driving revenue and driving sales than we are about thinking about cutting costs ever. So we, we certainly want to try to put the best product we can on the plate. Um, you have been or are planning to increase the number of shack openings, correct? Um, but you've seen an, a decline in average weekly sales. And some analysts are saying that's going to be a problem. Well, I think when you study the history of Shake Shack, we're born in New York City. We have tremendous AUVs here, over $7 million per shack just in New York. And we, we uh, spent a lot of time in our last earnings call talking a lot about the regional strength of Shake Shack. Um, and long term, we think we'll have a lot of shacks in that three to four million dollar range. But what a tremendous start and op profit sales that we've had here. And it is a number we expect to slowly decline over time to still remain one of the industry's strongest average unit volumes. So we're not seeing cannibalization right now. There's been some instances we've talked about some of this on our calls where putting a shack near another one may have impacted it. And that's a decision we're going to continue to make time after time. We're not running this business for percentages. We're running it to make a lot of money. And we do that when we open more shacks. We just opened two more in New York. We just yesterday opened our fifth in L.A. and El Segundo. And, you know, if that has a small impact on another shack, we will make that decision every time to grow our company the right way. Randy, tell us about mobile ordering. We know last year Starbucks kind of got tripped up a little bit. It was too successful for them. They weren't able to handle the, the, just the rush of it. I've been using the mobile order. I love it. It's Me really too. easy to do. Um, are you guys seeing any of the problems that Starbucks had last time? It's making it, it's streamlining what I can tell as I go. It's an amazing thing. You, you look at, you know, I, look, my kids are not going to grow up waiting in lines, yeah. right? They're going to grow up having immediate everything they want right now, and it better be the best. The mobile app is just one way we're bringing Shake Shack to you wherever and whenever you are. So we're seeing increased uh, rate of usage. We're seeing increased rate of return. We have a higher average check when people use the app. And like you, people love it. You know, we may not have in the past been able to schedule our 6 o'clock date at Shake Shack because we weren't sure about the line. Now, I'll go on at noon, order for 6 o'clock, show up, my food is ready. And it's, it's entering a whole new thing. To the Starbucks point, yeah, we and anyone else in operations always has a challenge. When you add more and you, you put that same amount of more stuff in the same funnel, it's hard. And we're working on new kitchen designs, a lot of air, new throughput, some great tests in our newest Astor Place shack in New York City where we're doing kiosk-only ordering with no cash. Uh, we're paying our team $15 an hour to start there. We're really proud of the, the innovations that we're taking on. Let me ask something on the labor front. I see you have some California exposure. It looked like you did a good job of keeping your, your labor margins kind of where they were. How do you do that, given that wages are going up, you just hire more efficiently? Yeah, Karen, it's, it's, it's a real challenge for us. Labor will be the greatest uh, headwind we have uh, for the next couple of years. There's no doubt. With rising minimum wage, the amount that we're growing, you know, we've announced we're going to have our largest year of growth yet. And with that comes a lot of preparation and a lot of leadership that we've got to develop. So we're spending a lot of money more than ever. And this Astor Place test is one where we say we know most of our world is headed towards a $15 an hour starting wage. We're thrilled to pay that to our team. So let's start rethinking our business model a little bit and find new ways where we can proudly take care of our team, give them a great wage where they want to continue to work at Shake Shack and grow, uh, but still have the strength of the incredible business model that we've built over all these years. Randy, thanks a lot for stopping by. Thank you. Welcome back anytime, especially with food. <laughs> Randy Garudi, the CEO of Shake Shack.
Timmy, by the Shake Shack it's turnaround. A, it's a great success story, and, and clearly the stock has endured some pain over the last six to nine months, really just in terms of how it's performed in the markets, not how they've performed in the stores. And, and, and if you think about where we are, first of all, the chart actually has gone through a pretty interesting bottom period. Uh, I think people have digested where the comps got ridiculously difficult. I think, I think the biggest <laughs> issues for Shake Shack are outside of the multiple that it trades at um, is, is that the costs in the industry are going higher. Uh, and I also think that the burger wars, the, the competitive landscape has never been more difficult. But again, the loyalty factor at Shake Shack does seem to be something that deserves the premium. People want to be there. You've been a bull from the early days. Yeah, well, listen, it's a great product, and I actually think they really differentiate themselves in a very crowded space. So just for the short-term traders out there, look at that chart right there. It bottomed two times this year at 30 bucks. It just got back to prior resistance. That was a good quarter. The stock was trading up. It was trading up 6 7% in the aftermarket. It cooled off a little bit after it reported. So to me, I think you obviously have to have a long-term view on this thing. You know, when you think about less than, what, 100 nice. stores or something like that, to me, I think it's a tremendous growth opportunity despite the high valuation, so I like it here. Did a Put nice a burger in his mouth and shut him up. I mean, he doesn't stop. Start eating, man. You know, you look like Guy Fieri taking that bite of the burger at the very end. Is that, I just, is that a compliment? Not a compliment. I'll tell you what Spicy. a compliment is. People will still wait online at Shake Shack, and they should. Their ingredients are better than everybody else's. These burgers kick serious rear end. I'm telling you right now, double bottom dance, right? I get along the shack right here, and I'm eating some fries as we speak. Maybe you could buy a cheap after Red Robin. Good point. Nice. Still ahead. Snap crackle drop. Snap out with earnings tomorrow after the bell. And if the stock short history is any indication, shares could be headed for single digits. We'll give you the details when Fast Money returns. <laughs> Welcome back to Fast Money. Snap shares sinking nearly 3% ahead of its earnings report after the bell tomorrow. And the options market's implying some pretty big moves. Dan's over at the plasma breaking it all down. Dan. Yeah, so the implied move for the next day post earnings about 13% or about $2 in either direction. We know that the company has only reported two quarters as a publicly traded company since their March 1st IPO. Last quarter, the stock declined 14% following its report. And then back in May, after the first report, since it was public, it declined 21%. If you look at what's going on here, options volume ran a little hot today, one and a half times average daily volume. It looked like there's some buying in the no weekly 2021 call spread. About 6,500 of those traded for pennies. This is a lotto ticket. That's not the way you want to play this if you think the stock is going to rally. But I just want to talk about that implied move for tomorrow. If you look at this chart here, $17 is significant. That was the IPO price. That was also the September high. That's $2 from here. That looks to be resistance. The September low is also $2 lower, about 13 bucks. So to me, that implied movement seems about right. All right, thanks for that, Dan. For more options action, check out the full show Friday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Meantime, coming up next, Final Trade. Time for the Final Trade, Tim. XLE bottom in August. It's going higher. Stay there. Chairwoman. Yes, TBT. I think we'll see inflation and happy anniversary to my husband. Aww. And me, I guess. Oh, nice. You too. Happy yes. anniversary. Happy anniversary to both of you. Dan. Time Warner alone. Me? Tell you what, man, that's Shake yeah. Shack. That's a that's a tasty tough burger. Job? Is it a tough Samuel job? Samuel Jackson. Tough job. Yeah, it is a tough job. Yeah. The scallions, you can cut yourself. Got to be careful the way you that method. But Shake Shack, Dan Nathan to my right mentioned double bottom shack will get you done. I'm Melissa Lee. Thanks for watching. See you back here tomorrow at five for more fast. Meantime, don't go anywhere. Bad hey. money from San Francisco begins right now. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. 
specialised across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager.